Welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for listening and making a commitment to your learning. We hope that you are doing well. We are your hosts. I am Yvonne Brandenburg. I am joined by Jordan Porter, as always. Hello, hello. And then um, our guest this week for the third, third one? Are we in Four. Four? Four. Fourth one is uh, Brittany Laughlin. Hi, Hi Brittany. if you don't know who Brittany is um she was in our first episode for the neurology section which was episode 60 um which was the neuro basics she's amazing she's an RBT she's got her VTS in neurology and as of January 1st which was (laughs) just a few days ago in um live recorded time right um she is now the president elect for amvt (laughs) we roped her in she's on the board (laughs) that's very exciting and nerve-wracking like (laughs) i know it's so funny because i think we um the last episode that we actually recorded with you like jordan and i knew the results but we weren't allowed to say anything to you so (laughs) we're like like, oh this is Brittany. <laughs> so it's it's officially official. Officially official. <laughs> officially um, serving. <laughs> yeah, and if you guys don't know what we're talking about, um our academy, so with our VTS, we are part of the Academy for Internal Medicine for Vet Techs. And I think we talked about it in one of our previous episodes that there's five subcategories. So small animal internal medicine, large animal internal medicine, neurology, which is where Brittany's you know, specialty is, and then oncology and cardiology. So, uh, we sit on the board for the Academy and, um, as of January 1st, I will be the president for the Academy. And then Brittany is taking over my place, which was president elect. And so, and then Jordan is secretary, secretary, right? That's your official. Yeah. Secretary treasurer. Yeah. So, and just to make sure everybody knows this podcast is not part of the academy so we just all happen to be on the board <laughs> it just worked out that way <laughs> we made this before we served on the academy this is very true we did start the podcast before we were elected so yeah that's very true um i don't think we have any uh questions from the last couple of weeks um partially because when we're recording this, all the episodes haven't gone live yet. Um, I know we had a couple of shout outs about the podcast because Brittany was on it, which was pretty cool. <laughs> Everybody was like, hey, neurology. And we're like, that's right. <laughs> we got uh, the brains for that. <laughs> all my nerdy neural friends are excited. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's pretty cool. It's like you guys actually, you know, get to represent, which is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and it's a, you know, it- working in like a neurology specialty and things like that like it's actually a pretty small pool of people so it doesn't take much before you actually kind of you know know quite a few people that work in different practices different places and stuff so yeah especially because how do you know how many um 
BTSs in neuro there are? 25. There's 25 of you. Mm-hmm. Brittany is one of 25 in the world. <laughs> Top 25. <laughs> wow. <laughs> And here right. I was all proud because I was like in the top 100. I know, right? We're like, we're in 100. Brittany's like, I'm in 25. I mean, to be fair, to be fair, specialty sits like one or two people a year, maybe. So it's not like we grow exponentially every yeah. year. <laughs> yeah. There, you know, we maybe get a grow. handful of applications. And yeah. Yeah. So that's okay. That's because they're special. Yeah. <laughs> So we're um, continuing our neurology series with um, today's episode, which is meningitis, which is the inflamed brains. Um, And this is, it is race approved for one hour of CE. If you go to internal medicine for vet membership.com, if you're a member in there, it is in the podcast course. You just need to complete the quiz to get your certificate. Um, if you're a non-member in most places, you can use this as self-study or, you know, if you just want to study and listen to some neuro talk, you listen can do that as fun. well. Right. Exactly. <laughs> listen to it to learn. Um, I, it's funny because I was listening to the first episode in the series, um, in my car and I was like, Oh, I'm still learning things. Like, I guess, I don't know. My, my brain did not compute it the first time I listened when we were talking, but the second time in the car, I was like, Oh yeah. Okay, cool. Cool. Yeah. So. That's how it is when I like edit the episodes. I'm like, I don't remember talking about that, but <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. So apparently if you re-listen to them, it works as well. <laughs> See? So, all right. Oh so goodness. this week we're doing meningitis or meningoencephalitis or meningoencephalomyelitis. Like, I think you just <laughs> add stuff to <laughs> Make how many longer words. See how many <laughs> syllables we can make it. Right. <laughs> yeah. From a from a loose term, most people are gonna just refer to it as meningitis. But if you want to get like really technical, there's not um really a way to specify is it the meninges that's inflamed or brain tissue or both things. So technically mm-hmm. it would be menin- meningoencephalitis. And then if you add myelitis to the end of it, then you're including the spinal cord too. But oh. most like veterinary or neurology type people are just going to say meningitis because that's only four syllables. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, it's the meningitis. It's fine. <laughs> I mean, really, really loosely at work. We, we like joke around about, you know, having the itis, but. So your itis, itis is meningitis. Right. Our itis is pancreatitis. Yeah. Mm, <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right, Brittany. Um, we're going to let you loose because again, you have the BTS and neuro, we do not. So here we go. Here we go. So um, this is, a, it can actually be a little bit complicated because there's um, kind of two subgroupings or subcategories of meningitis. So what we're talking about is um, when you hear the term meningitis, that's referring to inflammation of the meningeal lining and or the brain tissue. So like, like I said, that's why technically we should call it meningeal, uh, meningoencephalitis um, because we can't really tell um, via MRI and things like that, which of those things is, is uh, the primary inflammation problem, you know? Hmm. Um, 
so the two kind of categories of this is that it can be the inflammation can be coming from an infectious process and there's like a million different organisms that can be causing this, right? So you can have bacterial infections, which is usually gonna be like staph and strep species. You can have fungal infections. And depending on what area you live in and what fungus predominates, um, you might see more of one or the other. We see a lot of blasto here. So uh, yeah. blasto, crypto, histo, aspergillus, all that stuff. Um, viral encephalitis, so this is um, things like distemper or FIP or rabies even. Um, Brachetzioles, protozoals, like toxoplasma, uh, neospora, and then even verminous, so thinking things like cuterebra that actually make their way um, into the brain itself. Which, Wait, what? Yeah. No. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's super, super, super rare. I think maybe, <sighs> maybe we had one case one time, but it was never, we couldn't, you know, definitively say that, but it sure, sure seems like it. <laughs> I um, have a strong dislike for parasites and the fact that it can go to your brain is even worse. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, all of it is a little bit creepy and scary to be honest, but you don't want any of those things in your nervous system, but, um, and that's, you know, that's a short list. Like it can right. be, it can be, there's a million different things that can, uh, cause some inflammation, infectious Amazing. organisms that can cause inflammation. So that's one category. And then we have the other category, which would be non-infectious meningitis. And so this is, there is no underlying infectious organism, but there is inflammation happening. And so why that's happening um, is a little bit uh, kind of up in the air, but there's some uh, information out there that implies maybe this is an autoimmune process that's happening, and but mm. why the autoimmune process is happening is a little bit questionable, or maybe it's happening for different reasons or whatever. Um, so like whether um, it's a primary or a secondary kind of thing. Right. So, okay. um, so you'll find different, um, you know, textbooks and articles that have different ideas about it, but the kind of general consensus is it's some sort of autoimmune something that's causing mm. this inflammation. Um, and so sometimes, um, these will get referred to, um, you can kind of sort of spec specify a little bit. So there's, uh, a, a type of, of non-infectious meningitis that is called GME or granulomatous um, meningoencephalitis. And then there's another type uh, that's necrotite, necrotizing oh, meningoencephalitis. Yeah. I don't know. I was like thinking what it looks like. And I was like, and it looks Swiss, bad. Swiss cheese <laughs> is what it looks like. I couldn't think of the word. Um, so there's necrotizing meningoencephalitis. Um, but those things really can only be definitively diagnosed histopathologically. So mm. a slightly more appropriate way to refer to like a non-infectious meningitis, um, unless you do histo and prove it, um, would be to call it meningoencephalitis of unknown etiology or of unknown or origin. So you'll see uh, MUE or MUO sometimes in literature. And that's basically what it's referring to. It was just basically saying this is a non-infectious version of meningitis, and we can't really be more specific as to whether it's granulomatous or necrotizing or some of the other kind of uh, specific types of um, uh, non-infectious meningitis because they don't have histopath or it's, it's difficult to say, you know? Is this also like when, when they say like a sterile meningitis, is that kind of, yeah, sometimes you, yeah, sometimes you'll see it referred to as a, a sterile meningitis too, okay. which again, is just implying that this isn't an infectious organism oh, causing it. It's why. just, it's <laughs> yeah. The, the brain is just mad for reasons. 
I was like, neuro and internal medicine. We love diagnosis of rule outs. <laughs> that is a little bit of what this is too. <laughs> Um, so just a quick refre- refresher, you talked about it in the first episode um, of this series. What did you say that was episode 60? I think. Um, yes, I believe episode 60. Yep. So I mentioned kind of loosely knowing that we were going to talk about meningitis, um, that uh, the men- meninges is just a thick kind of protective membrane that surrounds the central nervous system. So the brain and the spinal cord is kind of covered in the shroud of meninges. Um, and then within the layers of the meninges is where the blood vessels and the C- uh, cerebral spinal fluid kind of exist. Um, and so hmm. worth noting that, cause that might be what the point of entry is specifically for organisms. Are they coming in through the vessels? Are they making their way um, uh, that way? Um, things like inner ear infections um, can be another point of entry. So really, really nasty inner ear infections can actually start to eat away at the bony layers and track up into um, the cranial vault. And then the cribriform plate, so the piece of bone that basically you smell <laughs> through. <laughs> yeah. And internal medicine techs are very familiar with the cribriform. <laughs> <laughs> right, because you guys do, you know, scopes and uh, yep. rhinoscopies and all that stuff. Yep. So, um, so inhaling specifically fungal species, um, this presumed mm. to be kind of inhaled through that cremiform plate, um, as another p- potential route of infection. Um, and then, like I said, non-infectious, um, meningitis, you can only really specifically say what type it is if you have some sort of histopath. Um, so we use kind of MUE or MUO, it's an umbrella term. Um, there are some like kind of markings on MRI that might make you be able to say one way or the other, but, um, which I'll talk about in a little bit. <laughs> when these, uh, little buddies come in, this part was a bit hard to, to put into words because it's, <laughs> it's kind it's kind of hard to explain, uh, what this is, what this looks like, you know? Yeah. Um, so, it, meningitis can happen in any species. It could happen in any breed and at any age, but most often they tend to be fairly young to middle age. So usually if they're Mm. younger than um, seven or eight, it's maybe a little more likely if they're beyond eight years old, you know, it might not say that it can't happen, but it's maybe a little lower on the differential list um, Mm. compared to younger dogs. Um, And then specifically the non-infectious type tends to appear in toy or small breed dogs, um, but also definitely not exclusively them, but, um, you know, it feels like most of the chronic meningitis dogs I have uh, in my work are tend to be like, you know, Yorkies or maybe pugs or, um, yeah, I'm trying to picture because when our neurologist was in their building, I do feel like it tended to be the smaller. Yeah. Smaller Usually my, my first meningitis case was a sterile meningitis and it was a boxer puppy. Yeah. Mm. Really cool. um, um, and I, I, you know, right now we're treating a pit bull, <laughs> so, like, yeah, it, so it can absolutely be in larger breeds. But, I was going to um, say, I think, um, we, we suspected a sterile meningitis in my dog, um, when I first got her, <laughs> <sighs> looking back at it, I was like, Ooh, yeah, your, your immune system was a train wreck. Cause she did, she was the one that eventually got Evans, but, um, mm-hmm we suspected at the time that it could have been related to medication. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, um, my dog, she, we suspected meningitis, um, just because she responded to the treatment for meningitis mm-hmm. versus originally they were like, Oh, she hurt her neck and she didn't respond to the like traditional like treatment for that. And so they're yeah. like, well, let's try this. And she totally responded. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> Yay. Dogs. Yay. <laughs> um, so, um, history-wise, when they kind of show up in practice, um, they often have a somewhat acute onset and usually a fairly rapid progression. So it's probably a history that's maybe um, days or maybe just a couple weeks long. Um, mm-hmm. But that's that can be really variable too. Because again, like I said, this is actually a pretty broad topic. So if we're talking about infectious and non-infectious, like Infectious right. going to look a little different than non-infectious. So, but for, for the most part, it's, it tends to be, um, you know, they, the owners notice their dog maybe doing or acting a little bit strange and they give it a few days and then the dog's not getting better. And maybe he's doing a few other strange things now too. And, um, so it tends to move fairly quickly and it can be pretty severe too. And very quick in that they could be fine mm. yesterday and now somewhat comatose today. So, um, so there's a lot of variation in how quickly it moves, but, um, uh, hmm. so yeah. Um, from like, a um, clinical sign perspective, usually it um, is going to have some sort of evidence of either focal or multifocal brain brain disease. So basically <laughs> any brainy signs, which makes this again fairly nonspecific and challenging when you're trying to diagnose it. So they could have um, specifically four brain signs like seizures. They could have some ataxia, maybe some mentation changes. Um, they could have cerebellar t- signs, usually ataxia or some sort of tremor. They could have brainstem signs, including ataxia, um, multiple cranial nerve deficits, or maybe even just one or two cranial nerve deficits um, and mentation changes. They could have some vestibular signs, so that kind of loss of sense of balance. So they may have ataxia, maybe some nystagmus, maybe a head tilt, um, or some combination of all of those things, or some of all of those things, you know. Mm-hmm anything that points to the brain generally. Um, yeah. I was going to say it's probably side. one of those things of like what parts being affected. Right. Right. Like there's right. so many things included mm-hmm. in the brain. It's like, okay, so where's the inflammation? Yeah. 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 So really uh, from a neuro exam perspective, being able to specify that this is in the head and not the body or the spine mm-hmm. kind of helps um, guide things also, but it just makes it challenging from like a, an owner standpoint, because this, this could look like a million different other things too, and especially in the onset. And you know, if they start out just with seizures only, well, then that looks like a whole different, you know, ball game of things. The one kind of extra thing that maybe elevates the suspicion for this is that they often, though not always, have cranial cervical spinal pain. So mm-hmm. because their brain is so mad, that's going to start kind of tracking inflammation out the foramen magnum and into the spine, into the cervical spine. And so they, um, they can oftentimes have these very brainy signs, but also have some pain in their neck too. Um, and so when we see that in my clinic, you know, it could be that it is actually a neck thing. Mm-hmm. It could be that it's just a brain thing, or it could be that it's something that's affecting both like a, like a meningitis, you know, but at least that's still yeah. in the same 
area of the animal. <laughs> I feel like, well, well yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of how my dog was. It was more cranial yeah. pain. And so that's why we were like, oh, she has neck pain, which is looking back at it. I was like, oh no, that wasn't just neck pain, but that was, you know, that's where she responded. Like, mm-hmm. she was like, oh, that's painful. And yeah. I feel like I've definitely seen some patients come in like through ER where the clients are like, oh yeah, they seem painful on their neck. And that's right. like the first thing that they notice. And then we're right. like, oh, it's more than just that, but. Right. Cause even some <laughs> of the like mentation stuff might be really subtle to mm-hmm. owners and, you know, it might be a little bit more obvious to us. Like the mentation stuff always makes me chuckle a little bit because, you know, these sometimes are fairly young dogs, like mm-hmm. one or two year old small dogs that should be like rambunctious and crazy. Mm-hmm. And they're just like super chill. They're like, the owners, I like, don't feel good. <laughs> the owner's like yeah it's just a super chill dog and you're like okay like maybe but also this doesn't really seem totally appropriate you know yeah (laughs) um and so yeah so when the owners come in with with these patients it can be really difficult for them to be able to tell you what they're seeing or have really a very specific complaint unless they're having literally seizures um it can be hard for them to pinpoint what what they want you to help them with or what they think is wrong with their dog you know um so it could be anything from them just you know the generic adr right so they just they're not sure but their dog just doesn't isn't quite acting right and they're not sure what to do about it so they just want you know a professional opinion which is great (laughs) right great thank you um or it could be specifically seizures which like i said that could lead you down a different diagnostic route potentially Mm -hmm. um um, and then even like i said it could be so severe that they you know have progressed very quickly and have gone to like mentation changes even to the degree of losing consciousness and um, being really really severely affected like that so in those cases Mm -hmm. those are probably coming in through the er you know, with the owner being like, oh my God, I have no idea what's going on. This just like happened, you know? Right. So, huh. um, so they can be very urgent, um, but they can also be just kind of a like simmering vague thing. Yeah. You're like, huh, what's yeah. going on with you? <laughs> it's a challenge. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so questions worth asking owners when they come with these kinds of patients, um, first of all, is vaccine status. Um, you know, do they it, have their rabies vaccine? Correct. Yeah. I, <laughs> I get a little bit soapboxy about the, the rabies vaccine stuff, especially because, you know, in the area that I work in and t- if I'm being fully honest, I don't always follow my own advice too, but like <laughs> <laughs> rabies is an encephalitis and it can look very vague and strange like this. And it's not mm. always, it's actually somewhat rarely the like rabid, angry, phobic dog you know what I mean Mm -hmm. like that's not a super common way it presents and often it'll actually present with this like kind of dullness and just overall weirdness so like just be extra careful with yourselves and just wear the gloves and if you get confirmation that they're up to date on vaccines then great but um, just always keep it I know it's not common and it's not something that we super have to worry about but just keep it in the back of your head because it is a thing (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. Like, d- d- there's not that much around me, but I actually got exposed to a rabies kitten. Wow! Um, because it it came in like a good Sam found this little kitten. It was super cute little, and it spent a week in my hospital. Um, mm. and it just was like it was like almost like a failure to thrive kind of yeah. kitten. Yeah. But they wanted to keep going, and um, just randomly one of my doctors was like, you know 
we should probably test this kitten to make sure it doesn't have rabies. Yeah. And it did. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it, you know, you can't it's just super, say it's never going to happen, but right. it's yeah. super, super, with our, super like, rare. Race, or our neurology department too. Yeah. They had like the exact same thing. It's nice. super, super rare, but it's a thing that exists and you have to be, especially, you know, in a, <laughs> in a time in life where some, sometimes vaccines aren't done Completely routinely yeah. and yeah. So like, just <laughs> just keep, your, keep yourselves safe and just be aware. You know, if you yeah. have a brainy patient come in, just wear the gloves. You should wear your gloves with every patient. I'm bad at it too. I'm trying to be better about it, but <laughs> <laughs> just do the thing. Um, so yes, double check their vaccine status. But then on top of that, how recent were their vaccines? And there is like zero specific evidence for this, but there's sometimes a little bit of a like down low, maybe recent vaccines initiated this autoimmune response that's causing this inflammation. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So um, if you do find that like, oh, the owner said he got vaccinated three weeks ago and then last week that started, like maybe keeping that in the back, you know, back of the head as um, probably being potentially an instigating factor kind of along with that a little bit too would be exposure to other viral infected animals particularly so um whether that is this dog came from you know was recently adopted and so it's maybe in a like high volume animal facility or they got it from a breeder that had a million dogs running around in a pen together you know something like that but then considering um, wildlife too. Is this an outdoor dog that has run up the farm and so potentially could have been exposed to any number of other animals carrying different viruses or um, uh, other infectious agents? So, um, you know, what is their, what is this dog's or cat or whatever's lifestyle like really? Um, could they have been exposed to some sort of toxin? Cause that can present um, in similar strange ways. So did it get into the garbage? Is there things laying around that they could have gotten into anything like that? Did they get into your medications? You know, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> did the quote unquote neighbor kid throw some weed over the fence? <laughs> That's always that my favorite. I'm like the neighborhood kids threw it over the fence, right? Is that what it is in California? Here, it's just that the neighbor hates dogs, so they poisoned them. Oh. <laughs> no, my question is, oh, any any weed? No, no, no. And I'm like, could some neighborhood kid have, well, it's possible. And you're like, okay. <laughs> you're like, you could have just said it was weed. It's fine. It's legal. It's California. It's <laughs> true. Um, also worth asking, is there any uh, potential for some sort of head trauma Oof. whether that's recent or even historic, like, you know, long time ago, a head trauma can initiate seizures that don't start for a year, you know? So this is coming in for seizures. Maybe it could be just a side effect from a past trauma or something. So just worth asking that. Hmm. Um, and then also, um, how's their ears? <laughs> right. Do they, Do they have the, the bola that's gone? <laughs> right. Do they have really frequent ear infections? Is that something that you've struggled with a lot? Do they currently have an ear infection? You know, mm. um, cause that can be helpful information. And then if they're presenting specifically with just seizures, um, then going down that whole route of questioning, which was, we talked about in the seizure episode, um, yeah 
a few weeks ago. So um, confirming that these do sound exactly like seizures or <laughs> like something that should, should, could be a seizure. Um, uh, and keeping in mind that sometimes um, this meningitis type stuff can look a little bit episodic too. They can mm. seem really bad today and maybe a little bit better tomorrow. And then they're a little bit worse the day after. So it can kind of mm. wax and wane a little bit too. Okay, cool. Sounds good. Makes sense <laughs> so far. Hopefully. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to ask, you know, figure out what, which way to go with it, especially when they're like, if they have vague presentation and stuff too. Yeah. Um, so, uh, differentials for these patients when they come in, um, particularly for really young dogs, like, um, a year or less, if they have strange signs, um, consider something like a congenital malformation, um, or like, you know, structural congenital issues with the brain itself, mm. um, could cause similar signs. Um, it could be, uh, uncontrolled metabolic or systemic disease. So we talked about or systemic shunts last time. So something like that. Um, do they have pancreatic issues? They hypo or hyperglycemic and that's causing some, some of this stuff, um, things like storage diseases and all that, um, can look like this too. Um, cancer is always a thing and cancer right. can look however it wants. So <laughs> it could potentially be something like cancer, um, if seizures are the only complaint and the only finding, then you could consider idiopathic epilepsy. Um, but if there's any other signs, then that's probably really, really unlikely, you know, mm. um, because I think we said it in the seizure one, if you have pathology, you're probably going to have some persistent signs and not just the seizures, seizures themselves. So, mm, okay. That <clears throat> makes sense. Yeah. Right. Um, Again, it could be some sort of head trauma if there's history of that or toxin exposure if there's history of that. Um, I added stroke to the list, although the this, strokes don't usually look like this. Um, they, they're a little more straightforward and not quite so vague um, hmm. in the way that they present, but it's not to say that it couldn't, that couldn't be a thing either. So um, worth, worth kind of keeping that on the list too, you know? That makes sense. Cause yeah, pressure, <laughs> pressure from blood in the brain, not a good thing. <laughs> so, um, diagnostics to figure out exactly what we're dealing with is going to be kind of <laughs> similar to the same things <laughs> that we have already talked about, but baseline blood work, um, just looking at systemic health and maybe worth doing T4 TSH or bile acids or ammonias. If you're thinking maybe there could be some metabolic components to this, Infectious disease titers might be worthwhile too. So actually sending out blood to look for crypto or blasto or, um, well, urine for blasto, but <laughs> I mean, you could, All the you things. could do blood, but, um, so sending out to see, is there evidence of those sorts of infections too? Usually, at least in my practice, that's usually kind of the last thing that we do is we want to rule out some of the other, other basics basics first. first yeah before because that infectious titers can get expensive really really quickly because yeah. they're you know probably like 80 to 100 bucks a lot piece, of them. you know and there's a ton of them <laughs> yeah. so trying to just rule out any of the other things before we start spending lots of money on that but um so mris you know gold standard for uh, brain imaging so we'll do the mr um knowing that 
there's often non-specific findings or maybe it won't look particularly like anything. Mm. Um, in my experience, um, as, and this is hard to say in like, you know, smart people, <laughs> smart people terms, but just generally the, the appearance of swelling in the brain, which is just really hard to characterize in like a very, uh, um, specific way. Usually it's going to look like, um, a loss of definition of the sulcus, which is the like divot, you know, the creases in the brain basically. Mm, mm -hmm. So you should be able to see those creases pretty distinctly on an MRI and so on. And a brain that's inflamed, you might lose some of that definition. It doesn't look quite so wrinkly. It just, it, and it looks, I always joke that it just looks like bulgy. Like it just looks like it had mm. it ate too many mashed potato, you know, <laughs> like it's just like, it just looks nice. bulgy. Um, you it's might bellied looking, right? Yeah. It's just a little like, <laughs> it's a little bloated looking. Um, um, there could be some presence of edema focally or even diffusely uh, edematous uh, brain tissue. And then also taking note, is there evidence of herniation of the brain? So is there so much swelling going on that you're actually starting to, uh, kind of squeeze out the back of the skull or, um, mm. herniation in some other ways too. So, um, that can help us say, Hey, there looks like there's some increased pressure, maybe because there is a lot of inflammation. So, um, that's causing this, these herniations. Um, I kind of mentioned uh, before, so the, the non-infectious specific types of meningitis, the granulomatous and the necrotizing meningitis, so granulomatous, you can sometimes see kind of indistinct, maybe contrast enhancing single or multiple lesions kind of throughout the brain. So mm. it's usually something like a tumor is much more distinct, like it usually has like edges to it. And you're like, that looks mm. like a mass in there where this is, there's something going on there and there's not specific margins to it. And it's, you know, there's something it's like an but, area that's a little bit highlighted, but it's yeah. not like there's no crisp border kind of thing. Right. Hmm. Which okay. could still be a tumor too, but right. <laughs> Cause again, cancer does what it wants. Cause it does whatever it wants. <laughs> like, you know, things like lymphoma might look like that too, but, mm, um, and then right. the necrotizing is a little bit more, it's a little bit easier to hang your hat on because, um, the ventricles may be swollen or maybe asymmetrically kind of uh, enlarged. So one may be a little bit bigger than the other, um, but they'll have these hypo intense kind of vacuoles throughout the brain. So it kind of, yeah. Swiss cheesy. Swiss cheesy brain. So if you see that like, oh my gosh, there's all these like holes in the brain and, and especially if it's a pug, cause pugs tend to be the ones to get this one. If it's a pug and its brain looks like Swiss cheese, you're like, oh, this might be necrotizing. <laughs> oh no. Um, so, so for those, with those characteristics on MRI, we can maybe say a little bit more specifically that this is what's going on. But like I said before, usually you're going to need like histo diagnosis to be for certain. So that procedure wise, sounds horrible. Let's just, let's just put that out there. I'm just going to take a little biopsy of your brain. It's fine. Don't I mean, worry. it's just a little, it's just a little tiny bit, it's just a, you know, it's not a lot. You don't need it. It's fine. It's fine. It's oh, fine. God. Uh, it's fine. Um, so yeah, procedure wise, we could do a brain biopsy, um, and go in and try to get a sample of 
whatever we're seeing or, or just of the brain tissue itself to see if there's some inflammation, but it's might be fairly low yield and it's really, really hard to convince clients to do that. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm squidgy about it. I'm sure a client's like, you want to do what? Yeah. And I not- mean, how would you do you go through the foramen or do you have to like, Oh no. Well, usually if it's just a biopsy, usually they'll drill like a little, probably like three or four millimeter hole through the skull and then just put in like a little like biopsy. Yeah. Like. A little like, yeah. And just take a little, you know, three or four millimeter piece and send it out to histo. So it's not a terribly invasive <laughs> thing. Um, I mean, it is, it's invasive. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's amazing. I'm just going to drill a hole in your skull. <laughs> Compared to like full on tumor resection, where you're yeah, taking off true. like whole, whole sections of skull and taking out whole, whole, you know, chunks of brains is relatively invasive compared to that. Um, and it, you know, so it's not, it's, but it's a, somewhat expensive. It's fairly low yield. Yeah. So it's, it's hard to get clients to really do that. And then the, at the end of the day, the treatment is generally the same stuff. So like mm. it, we could spend all this money to try to like hang our hat on a specific diagnosis or we can just move forward, right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, it's hard. It is hard when you're like, well, it, it some, yeah, it's, it's like for us, it's like the IBD versus GI lymphoma. Like we yeah. kind of treat them the same. So if you don't have the money to do the biopsies, we can just treat, right. You just know, move, yeah. We, ahead just knowing it. that we, we don't know one way or the other. So, right. yeah. Right. So, um, so it could be worth doing, but yeah, not everybody's going to do it. And even in my, my own practice, like we don't do it hardly. <laughs> yeah. That sounds, yeah. <laughs> it's just not very common. Um, and then other specialized testing, um, would basically just be doing a, a spinal tap. So doing, uh, collecting CSF to look for, if you're super duper, 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 duper lucky, maybe you'll be able to actually see an infectious organism. It's really, really rare. Mm. Um, but sometimes it happens and everyone gets really excited when it does, but because you, you have a definitive answer right, <laughs> with, a, with a relatively, you know, non-invasive thing. Um, but it's really rare. So don't get excited too much about that. Um, more often than not, really what we're looking for is, is there signs of inflammation? And that's mm-hmm. going to look like an increased white cell count in the CSF. So the CSF should have none cells in it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and so if you start to have uh, white cells circulating around the CSF, then that sounds like, you know, the body's called to arms, the white blood cells to try to help it out. So, um, this, uh, from a medical standpoint, it's called pleocytosis when there's white cells in the, mm. <laughs> in the CSF, nice. but it's a non-specific finding. It doesn't need mean anything super specifically. It just, maybe there's some inflammation going on. Right. It doesn't tell you whether it's infectious or not or whatever. It just, Unless you see organisms within Unless you your white see blood cells. an organism, yep. Yeah. Um, and then you can culture the CSF too if indicated, but I can probably count on one hand the number of times I've done that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just don't do it very often. Um, so treatment-wise, um, again, it depends on how they have presented to you. So if they're super bad and you know non-ambulatory or have um, having trouble 
um, with their mentation or having seizures, then those cases are probably going to need to be hospitalized for some amount of time so we can stabilize them basically and make sure that they're not, you know, the owner's not going to wake up tomorrow with a dead pet. <laughs> right. um, and so we can have more time to kind of uh, get a feel for what, what actually is going on. But they could also be outpatient patients. Um, if they come in with these vague signs and, you know, maybe you did the workup and now they're relatively stable. So then they can go home for treatment. You know, we don't have to do anything special for them really. Um, just keeping in mind that the owners need to understand that they might get worse and they need to come back if they get worse, you know? Um, so sometimes just with that in mind, owners are like, why don't you just keep them for a couple of days just right. to have professional eyeballs on them, you know? Um, so it could go either way. Specific treatment um, usually is going to revolve around some amount of immune suppression. So uh, in my practice, usually we start with steroids um, and see where that gets us. Um, there's also many non-steroidal immunosuppressives we can use. Uh, where I work, we usually use something like mycophenolate or cyclosporin. Um, for really bad cases or really difficult to manage ones, we'll um, jump into doing intermittent chemotherapy. Um, so we usually use cytarabine injectable for that, um, just to try to drive down the immune system so that their brain isn't so swollen. <laughs> Yeah, I think is cytarabine more common like with the necrotizing? Not necessarily. We do okay. it. We'll do it for anything. If it, you know, I'm not the doctor, so I'm not 100% sure what their like cutoff point is, but usually okay. it's the ones that are having um, probably side effects. More severe. Yeah, they have more yeah. severe disease. They're having side effects because the, the amount of immune suppression we have to do to get them under control is just too much for them. So we try to kind of bridge that gap a little bit so we can lower the medications because intermittently we're going to be giving a chemo that's going to do some of that for us too, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's usually the ones that are like, this is, this is our last ditch effort to try to get some longevity out of them, you know? Mm -hmm. um, if we can identify an infectious organism, so again, we send out the titers, if there's anything specifically we're, you know, worried about, or sometimes we just send off our like little group of standard titers just to see what, what sticks, <laughs> you know? Um, and then if you get a positive from those, then you're just going to focus your treatment on that, right? So if you happen to get a positive fungal, then you're going to do antifungals. Or if you have a high evidence of suspicion that this might be a fungal thing, then you can start them on antifungals. Um, antibiotics, if it does happen to be bacterial, um, or sometimes we'll do what we joke around is the neuro cocktail, which is just doxyclindopred. <laughs> you know, if we're not 100% sure where to start with treatment, we're just going to start with these three things and see where that gets us and maybe discontinue one or two or, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I, well, and it's important to like when we're thinking about it, is we talked about this, I think, in the basics episode whatever drug it is that you use, it needs to cross the barrier. Right. <laughs> like you can't right. just throw a drug at it. That's not going to cross the blood brain barrier. Right. So. Right. And doxy is good for that. Clinda, I think uh, is not as great, but um, covers a different spectrum of things than doxy. So we're just mm. trying to cover all the bases and, and then the bread for the inflammation, you know? Yeah. So, um, if you do have hospitalized patients with this, like I said, it's really variable how bad they are, but um, they can require some intense monitoring. Um, so just keeping some eyeballs on them and checking in on them fairly frequently, you're probably gonna have to do some level um, 
I mean, depending on how bad they are. Sometimes they'll need some recumbent care. So making sure that they're not developing ulcerations or urine scald or, you know, mm. um, any of that stuff, um, atelectasis and all those things from just laying, uh, laying chronically, um, evaluating their neural status, including, uh, and not limited to their mentation, but maybe even doing some cranial nerve evaluation to see, you know, if you're the one that notices, Hey, this dog had normal pupils before, but now they're a little bit asymmetric like that might be worth knowing. Cause maybe this is the start of a, a nasty cascade of inflammation. So, um, so making sure you're checking on those things. That's why the neuro exam is important for nurses too. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> um, monitoring for seizures. Cause even if they didn't present for seizures is, a, you know, if the brain's inflamed, there's always the chance that they could start. So having some system of monitoring for that and then um, managing their nutrition and hydration. So if they're mm-hmm. not very conscious, you know, hydration is a little simpler, right? And just do an IV catheter and, give them maintenance fluids or whatever. Um, but nutrition, you might have to experiment a little bit, right? If they're not, um, if you can't get them to wake up well enough to be able to eat safely, then you might have to consider alternative routes of, um, nutrition. So things like E-tubes or, um, any tubes or, you know, all those things Mm. that you guys do. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Then we'll send them the medicines, like stick a tube in them so that we can feed them. (laughs) And then we'll come back to you and we're like, it won't go, it's not working. And tell me all the tricks to make it work again, you know? Oh my God. Nice. <laughs> um, so making sure that they're getting the their daily caloric need because personally, this is kind of an aside, but personally, I feel like um, sometimes we get complacent in that and that mm. we're like well I gave him some chicken and he didn't eat it so I guess he's not going to eat this time and then you wait another six hours before trying again and like before you know it it's been two days and they really haven't eaten anything and if you've ever gone two days without eating anything you're pretty spent yeah and I, with the feeding things and and I know our nutrition friends are going to be very excited that right. we're talking about nutrition uh but it's I mean you're starving the body and in order for it to heal, we do need the nutrition, right? You need the energy, you need those electrolytes and all that stuff that comes into Mm -hmm. um, being fed appropriately. So like, is it okay to miss one feeding? Probably, but we need to make sure that they're getting some amount of nutrition at some point, because yeah, if if they're running out of energy, (laughs) because they haven't eaten anything. We need to solve that for them. And sometimes it's amazing how quickly, like, you know, when we, um, well, there's times where we'll start arguing, like, Hey, can we start doing something like entice for this dog? Because we just really want them to be interested in eating. And then they start, they start eating and then they, it's kind of sometimes amazing how much better they just feel (laughs) when they're they're eating again. Cause they have that, you know, nobody likes being hangry or no, or oh man yeah. not able to function because they don't have any glucose left you know right <laughs> yep um and then sometimes you know i have to throw in a little bit of the like physical rehab too if these are down dogs and they're down for some amount of time doing you know range of motion exercise on their limbs sometimes even getting them up and like holding them up standing mm. for a few minutes a day like that kind of stuff helps in the long term it's a little bit of a um, um enrichment thing for their brain too. And, 
Um, so doing those things so that when they do have, when they get better and they do have the ability to get up, then they're not fighting against muscle loss and things like that from being down. Right. Know? Plus it's going to help with like ulcers and all that stuff too. So, yes. <laughs> well, and there, there is that whole, like getting them moving kind of helps get the guts going too. That too so right. Yeah. Maybe they're we, more likely to eat and they have less ileus and all that yeah, fun stuff. My, so. my coworker and I kind of yell about that. <laughs> <We're called laughs> she, she works particularly in rehab. And so when we have a dog that doesn't want to eat, she'll be like, let's put him in the treadmill. So he's like getting up and moving so that maybe he'll eat because mm. the gut is actually like, Oh, Hey, you know, Get yeah. stuff moving inside so that they'll want to eat on the outside. Nice. <laughs> um, so for clients, um, what they can expect with uh, their meningitis dog, uh, the, probably one of the bigger things is that they just need to understand their dog might not ever be completely normal again. Mm. Um, so they might always be just a little bit funny. <laughs> mm. um, usually, well, I shouldn't even say usually it's, they can, I mean, they can go back to normal, but they just, they should have the, uh, not have that expectation that that's what is definitely going to happen. Um, usually they're very, we can get them to a point where they're functional and definitely happy and living good qualities of life. They Mm -hmm. just maybe will be a little ataxic or might have a persistent head tilt or something like that, you know, like, um, I would guess it probably just also depends on how severe the inflammation was and like what was affected. And obviously if it's necrotizing, I mean, that's, right. that's tissue death. <laughs> so, right. ugh, so there's yeah. so much we can do for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just so that the owners are aware that, you know, they might always be a little bit funny and that's okay. Um, <laughs> and generally what we try to do is to get them to their lowest effective medication dose. Um, so ideally in a perfect world, I would like to not have to have your dog be on steroids. So ideally mm-hmm. we'll do this and we'll, we start them out usually at, um, at or approaching, um, immunosuppressive, uh, steroid doses. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll do the like super, super, the super longest steroid taper of your life. So like, <laughs> Sounds like internal medicine. (laughs) We'll start you out at immunosuppressive doses for like maybe four to six weeks. And then Mm. maybe 10 to 20% reduction, something like that, like the tiniest little reduction and then Mm. do that for another month or so. And then another tiny little, so we take, it takes the long time, but hopefully we can get to the point where they're off completely. Um, knowing that it could come back and we have to put it back on, um, Um, but worth making sure the owners are aware that these medications are probably going to be to some degree for life. So even if we get them off it completely great, but at some point we're probably gonna have to put them back on. And if we Mm. don't ever get them off it, then they might just have to be on it forever. This gets a little bit sticky too, because the owners are aware, like, Hey, we're trying to get down to a really low dose. So then the owners start to do cool things like weaning themselves. Um, that's our favorite too, (laughs) which, you know, I get it, but it just, it just makes it hard for us to really be able to keep close eye on them too. If, if we're not sure what the owners exactly are doing at home, or maybe they're doing it too quickly and it's just adding insult to injury a little bit and that sort of thing. The other side of the coin too, is that we sometimes will have owners, um, they need to be aware that they need to stay in close contact with us too, because, mm. um, if, if God forbid we drop the ball and forget to call you to check in, 
then maybe your dog's going to be on immunosuppressive doses for like six months. And then we don't want that either, you know? So like, right. <clears throat> keep in touch. <laughs> we, we don't want them on high doses forever. We need to, we need to work on it. So it's, you know, you'll become very familiar with your veterinary <laughs> staff, <laughs> yes. you know? Um, long-term really, this becomes a quality of life balancing act. So some do really, really well maintaining with medications or very, very small doses of medications for a long time. That's great. Mm. Um, the majority will at some point kind of crash and burn, which is a bummer town, mm. but, um, hopefully we can get a decent amount of longevity out of them like a few years before it, uh, you know, escalates to this, but, mm. um, I mean, owners kind of need to be aware too, that this, that's, it's a possibility that, it could spiral out of control and happen very quickly. And there's might not be a whole lot we can do in those, mm. in those instances too. Um, steroid side effects become a huge concern. Um, Cause like I said, sometimes we have owners that we lose track of and then they're on high doses of steroids and we only find out they've been on high doses when they call for the refill and you're like, holy moly, <laughs> been on this right. dose for way too long, you know, or, um, or uh, the other way around where the owner's kind of monkeying with it themselves. And so you're not really sure what they've been getting um, overall. Um, but, you know, I'm sure you guys are aware too. Steroid side effects are a big, big, big deal for clients. So yeah. um, they will probably gain weight. They will probably lose muscle. They might get, um, you know, the hair loss and all that kind of mm-hmm. not pretty looking dog stuff. Um, they can develop calcinosis cutis or other skin conditions too, right? Because they're immune suppressed. So now they're more likely to get, you know, dermatitis and all that kind of stuff that goes with it. And that can be very frustrating for the clients. Um, and then even just other recurrent infections, recurrent UTIs, ear infection, like all that stuff can become problematic too. So, um, again, why we try to wean them off, we have to balance what their side effects are looking like with what they neurologically are looking like. And should we taper them a little faster or should we add in a different medication and try to get them off it? You know, it becomes just this like knife edge (laughs) balance (laughs) that we do, you know, do what we can for them. Yeah. Well, and I think that's, I almost feel like the steroid side effects are like the biggest thing that we talk to clients about because they don't understand that it is because of the drug. And yes, once we get them off of the drugs or we taper them to a lower amount, like those things go away. Like these are not permanent things, but in the meantime, they're very frustrating for some others, especially like the PUPD. Like, I feel like that's the biggest one that they immediately see. Um, and so that's, that's one thing that for us communicating with the clients is, is a big deal. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm making sure that they, yeah, no, the to expect those sorts of <laughs> things because that's just it just is what it is, unfortunately. Um, generally, prognosis for these guys is really, 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 really dependent on what the underlying cause is and then how severe they are at presentation, which I think you kind of touched on a little bit, Yvonne. Is that if they if they come in really crazy bad and like comatose the first time you see them, those that's probably not going to be. Um, one that's going to have a very long prognosis in general, unfortunately, but, um, the ones that maybe just are a little bit vague and just have a little bit of signs, they might do a little better longer term. 
Um, overall, it's generally poor, but again, it's, it varies and it's very, very patient dependent. Hmm. So, um, follow-up, like I said, there's lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of follow-up <laughs> that happens, whether that's, um, I know for us, we kind of go back and forth. We'll have an in-person visit and then we'll do kind of a over the phone visit and mm-hmm. then in-person the next time. Cause we don't, you know, it's hard for people to come in and, um, especially if they have to come in really frequently. So we try to, again, find some sort of balance that works, especially if the patient seems to be doing really well, you know, um, most yeah. everybody has a smartphone or some ability to take a video and send it. So that helps too, to be able to see um, a little bit how the patient's doing. Um, and then again, like usually we'll do some amount of, of once a month or every few weeks check-in because we'll probably be changing the medication doses. Um, we might need to see them to do blood work checks, especially for the immunosuppressants, you know, if they're going to be on microfinally, we need to make sure we're not bottoming them out. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I'm making sure the owners are aware that that's long-term. That's what that's going to look like too, is they're just going to get real comfortable with going to the vet and (laughs) knowing their, you know, treatment team and stuff pretty well, because you're going to be in contact with quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, again, that's also part of the beginning conversation is, you know, setting up this expectations of what this is going to look like long-term, because if you don't have that conversation up front and then all of a sudden they're like, why do I have to keep coming in? And you're like, this is kind of what you signed up for. I think that's when they get really frustrated and, you know, you probably lose them to follow up. Whereas if you have that conversation ahead of time, you know, and, and it's hard because I don't know about you guys, but you know, a lot of times things will come in through like the emergency department or Mm -hmm. it'll come from the primary vet and they haven't had that conversation that yes, you're going to consult with either internal medicine or neuro, whatever it is about this disease, but they haven't talked about what that means long-term. Right. right? And so then all of a sudden they're like, they're blindsided and you're like, cool. Well, you just spent like, let's pretend they're in the emergency clinic you just spent a thousand dollars on diagnostics and workup to be transferred to us for us to tell you, well, this is now a <laughs> lifelong commitment right. with this going on right. versus, oh yeah, we fixed it and you're going home. You know, right. I think, I think we can all be a little bit better about that. Yeah. Um, just cause that, that definitely is, is frustrating for pet owners. Um, and, yes. and they let it out on us sometimes. <laughs> and we're Hopefully like, not. okay, okay, let's yeah. have a conversation. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Cause yeah, like you said, it's, it can be a tough pill for owners to swallow too, to like mm. try to wrap their head around, like, like you said, and especially if they're doing their, you know, pets doing really well. And you're like, we need you to come in. They're like, why? right like why am I coming in my dog's fine and like we need to like like, see that it's fine (laughs) and then also make sure that blood work wise it's fine (laughs) also you know (laughs) because if we just assume everything's okay then that's when you run into those like crash and burn situations where you're like well it was fine last time but you know yeah so yeah yes I agree it's the tip of the week so our tip of the week this week is wear gloves with everything because it could be rabies or all sorts of other cooties. But if you see neurologic signs, it's a good idea to wear gloves and protect yourself. 
that it? Is that all we want to say about that, girls? Sounds amazing. Cool. Sounds pretty simple. Wear gloves. <laughs> wear gloves. Especially just in given in the fact that we're in the year 2020, we should probably just wear gloves more often anyway. Right. Wear gloves, clean your hands. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and now for the question of the week. Uh, so this week's question, we're going to ask you what your experience is with meningitis. Have you had patients with that, you know, were diagnosed with meningitis? Do you have any cool stories about it? Um, yeah, let's, you know, because what other questions could we ask about meningitis? I don't know. Like I said, my first case was a boxer puppy, sterile meningitis. <laughs> he did really, really, really well with just low dose steroids. Nice. See, I know. I feel like, like I made it sound all like doomy and gloomy. And sometimes <laughs> they're like the coolest kind of comeback stories too. Cause I've had yeah. many a patient that you're like, oh my gosh, they're, you know, not conscious and they're like doing really poorly. And then you start giving them all these meds and stuff and they perk up a little bit and they do. Yeah. That's good, like, you know, so. hepatic encephalopathy. You're like, right. oh my God. And then, <laughs> and then like the look, next day they're look, like all better. Yeah, it might look really bad on the on the outset, but give them some time, have some patience. Exactly. <laughs> give them the TLC and you might be surprised. Again, all depends on the, on how quickly the brain, brain recovers, how much inflammation there was, whether it was infectious or is it non-infectious? Because I feel like infections, they tend to do better because you, oh. like with any <laughs> internal medicine disease, right? You like clear the infection, and then it's better. Not in the brain, though. <laughs> really? It's infections really, it's wow. really, really hard to treat infections in the brain, especially. Oh, that's true. Especially fungus. Fungus is to me. Well, that I feel like fungus worst. is just evil because it's you, the worst. It's like you can't get rid of it no yeah, matter what. It's terrible. All right. Anything else we need to cover about meningitis this week? Because, because <laughs> infectious. We could just do an episode about infectious stuff. Actually, just, I'm like sure. Random. I'm sure we're gonna get. There. We should do a story time. <laughs> just invite a couple of people on. We yeah. can tell crazy infectious disease stories. All the oh things you've been exposed to as a vet tech, and then right? like how all the oh. ways you've learned from it. Oh my god, so true. All right. Well, hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode. Um, we've still got a couple left with Brittany, so hopefully, um, you know, you guys don't hate her yet because we kind of love her. So that's been so fun. It's kind of fun to have somebody else on the show too. We're like, woo, sweet Christmas present for us. (laughs) All right, you guys, we'll have a wonderful week. Keep getting your learn on. We'll talk to you next week where we continue on our um, brain series. And um, we'll talk to you later. Bye guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.